any acts or threats of political violence are an attack on our democracy itself. Americans head to the polls in one week with the control of Congress hanging in the balance. But also hanging over the country is a divided nation. Are recent acts of violence an offshoot of our current political climate or simply the new normal? This is TikTok. I'm Dave Myers. Joining me today from Washington is Bloomberg News' political reporter, Anna Edgerton. Anna, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. So summarize for us what the country has seen the past week when it comes to what's being called political violence. It was a really tragic week and a very scary week for a lot of people. Um, The most shocking thing, I think, was the shooting of 11 people at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And that came on the heels of uh, supposed suspected packages, pipe bombs that were mailed to prominent Democrats that had been frequent targets of Donald Trump's rhetoric. And then there was also a shooting of two black people in Kentucky. And all of these attacks and threats kind of had the image of um, you had the idea that internet postings had come kind of leapt into real life and resulted in real life tragedy where you see that some of the things that people say on the internet you might dismiss as just you know crazy hate talk and then you see it can actually happen in real life and then how has the president himself responded to these real life acts of violence no nation can succeed that tolerates violence or the threat of violence as a method of political intimidation coercion or control. The president did call for unity initially. He said, this is a time for the country to unite. The FBI is doing everything it can to investigate these incidents. But then he returned to his familiar attack attack strategies in campaign rallies in Wisconsin and in Charlotte, North Carolina. The media also has a responsibility to set a civil tone and to stop the endless hostility and constant negative and oftentimes false attacks and stories. Have to do it. And it was, you know, it was kind of a disappointment for some people who I think wished that the president would rise above and take some ownership for the way that his supporters have interpreted what he said, even if his intent when he says these things is not to incite violence. So some would argue that the president of the United States is supposed to bring the country together uh, in situations like this, in times like this. But it seems instead of just, just unity, the administration is playing kind of both sides of this moral fence, at times reassuring the country, like you just said, uh, when the country needs it, but then also turning it around and using it almost for political gain. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, the president's M.O. is to establish fear and to kind of rile up his base and use familiar enemies as the way to make his supporters support him even more strongly and support his political party more strongly. And now, just a week before the midterms, that is the most important thing for President Trump and for Republicans, is to make sure that the base knows that if they want the policies that President Trump has put in place, they need to go out and vote for a Republican Congress that will help him accomplish those conservative goals. Why is fear such a important tool? You know, the, fear is not a new strategy in American politics. You've seen examples, you know, over the past two centuries of stirring up fear about communists or about uh, civil rights or about Jews, even in, in past periods of history. And you see it 
coming up in nowadays in uh, an overt way where you have uh, politicians openly talking about this, but then also it kind of takes off takes on a life of its own when it gets into some of the silos of the far right where people can just you know share information that is false or misleading, and then it kind of takes on the snowball effect and it becomes a very very potent get out the vote strategy for people who are afraid of the country becoming something that they don't want it to be. So for who, for those people who, you know, they don't want this country to become something they're afraid of, who is that, though? Is that a likely voter? Is that an independent voter? Is that someone who's already firmly believes in, you know, one candidate or the other, and no matter what is supporting them? I think that's going to be a very important question that will be answered after this midterm election. And that's really what we're going to see after November 6th is whether or not this strategy works and whether or not the, you know, let's say 20 percent of the United States that is motivated by nationalist, uh, more restrictive isolationist policies, if they are enough to push a winning strategy, or if there's going to be a sufficient backlash from the left and people who support more progressive policies and more inclusive, uh, more inclusive policies, if, if they will end up sweeping these people out of power in, in congressional elections. But we should be clear, it's just not one party using the, the tool of fear out mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. It is, it is the Democrats as well, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly right. There are examples of Democrats who have encouraged not explicit violence, but um, I guess we could say aggression against uh, Republican members of Congress, administration officials. You see White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders pushing back very strongly against this after she and her family had to leave a restaurant in Virginia because people were... um, yelling at her and making it an uncomfortable situation for her and her family. Ted Cruz and his wife were kind of yelled out of a restaurant. And so there are examples of uh, Republican officials being kind of not physically threatened, but kind of accosted in public. And the and Republicans are really pointing to these examples as saying, look, the other side does it too. This is not just a President Trump problem. This is uh, the left acting like a quote unquote angry mob, as the as the president likes to say, and um, you know being kind of out of control in their protests of hatred for the president. But this protest of hatred, you know, following the shootings in Pennsylvania, following the bomb threats to prominent Democrats, you know, following the shootings in Kentucky that left two dead, um, that just is last week. But this mm-hmm. election has been in full swing for months now. So what other events have been driving this, this wedge between Americans, driving it further apart? This will be an election of Kavanaugh, the caravan, law and order, and common sense. That's what it's going to be. Well, one of the president's favorite talking points of the past few weeks has been this caravan of immigrants coming from Central America up through Mexico. There's still months away from the southern border of the United States, but the president is sending the active duty military down to the border to make sure that people know this is an issue they should be focused on and concerned about, even though um, these people aren't presenting any uh, immediate threat to the United States of America. Like I said, they're months away from even reaching the border. So um, this appears to be very clearly a midterm strategy since the midterm is next week. Um, And that kind of goes along with the president's 
previous statements on immigration and, you know, his initial campaign rally to build the wall to keep out people who are not United States citizens and who have not waited in line, as he likes to say, to go through the legal immigration process. And is today's news that we learned from the Axios on HBO interview with the president that he's considering ending um, by executive order, as he says, um, birthright citizenship. Is that part of that strategy as well? Yeah, and this is a really interesting question. It didn't begin with President Trump. Republican members of Congress, like Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, have supported um, reinterpreting this amendment for a long time, going back to 2010. And the the part of this amendment that this argument hinges on is um, who is under the jurisdiction of the United States. And the argument from some of these Republican members of Congress and now President Trump is that the jurisdiction doesn't apply to someone who is not a citizen. So therefore, their children are not uh, citizens of the United States. Um, there seems to be pretty broad agreement uh, among most constitutional scholars that you can't reinterpret the Constitution with an executive order. But this is an example of where it's really important for the president to appoint conservative judges that he thinks will uphold his policies and his uh, priorities. So, you know, if this if there is an executive order that reinterprets the 14th Amendment, then that could be challenged in the lower courts. It could go to the Supreme Court, and then it's going to be up to a conservative-leaning Supreme Court to decide whether or not this will stand. So he uses this almost as as a way to say to the base voters that vote in the midterms so we can put more conservative judges on the bench and we can, can fix this problem that you're afraid of. That's certainly the argument for the Senate, since it is the Senate uh, that confirms judicial nominees. So I, I understand that as a tactic, uh, and I understand how using the caravans, and I understand how using fake news and the media um, as examples of the dangers. I understand that as a tactic. But does that strategy have a, a reverse effect to the other side of the aisle that fires up a young, diverse block of Democratic voters? So while you might be getting out the Republican base, it, it does run the risk of maybe firing up another base. Certainly, and that's more of a concern for uh, moderate Republicans that are members of the House, where you see people like Carlos Curbelo in a South Florida district, Brian Fitzpatrick in a swing district in Pennsylvania, who are trying to cast themselves as very reasonable, inclusive, um, kind of common sense Republicans who you know might agree with the president on economic. Uh, on economic policy, but have pushed back very strongly to their credit against some of his social policies and environmental policies. Um, The more the president kind of makes this a polarized environment and encourages some independents to lean towards Democrats, the harder it is for moderate Republicans to get reelected. So part of the interpretation of the president's strategy right now is that the more he tries to rile up the base, that might be good for Republicans to win Senate races in traditionally red states, but that could cause more Republican casualties in the House of Representatives. So it's a strategy to shore up the Senate because possibly the, the the House is a lost cause. And that's where we see the president making most of his, I think all of his stops on the campaign trail over the next week before the midterms. Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, I spoke with Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania yesterday, and he said, you know, we are 
up eight points ahead of our opponent. Um, you know, my constituents know me, they like me, but if the national mood moves strongly enough against Republicans, that's when he is at risk of losing his race. What indications, other indications, do we have that the recent events of last week, just last week, is how that's going to play on Election Day? What we've seen so far, and I spoke with political scientists and even some scholars who have studied political violence and democracy yesterday, and they uh, said that this tends to increase the polarization where red states will get more red, blue states will get more blue, because when voters are scared and when people are kind of unsettled in you know this week of violence that we had last week, they tend to move towards comfort. So I think that's even exacerbated in the kind of different silos we have in American society where people get their information from different places. So they might have a different interpretation of what has happened and who's to blame. So again, that's going to be something that is more challenging for uh, members of Congress that are trying to win in purple states and purple districts. But it's going to be a the bet for Republicans is that's going to drive turnout in the base. You know, and elections used to be pretty boring. <laughs> um, then came the 2016 election, and now this election, where harsh rhetoric and fear-mongering on both sides is what we see on the trail. Um, is this type of bare-knuckle politics and the lack of civil politics, is this the new normal in the United States? You know, it's hard to tell. There are a, There is a good kind of cross-section of members of Congress from both parties, uh, you know, the more moderate members who really want to empower the center and try to emphasize areas where the two parties agree and kind of try to bring us back to focusing on what we have in common rather than focusing on differences. But the political structure right now is... It, it rewards the extremes. I spoke with Ryan Costello, a Republican member of the House, who decided this year not to run for re-election because he didn't want to campaign in this environment. And he said, you know, if you are willing to say, you know, the caravan is coming to get us, it's a scary thing, Fox News will book you. If you're willing to say it's all Donald Trump's fault, then other networks will book you. And so there's kind of a, a media environment and a fundraising environment that rewards members of Congress that kind of play to the lowest common denominator on, on, on their ideological ends. Anna, thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Make sure to follow Anna on Twitter. She's at AnnaEdge4. That's a TikTok for today. Thanks for listening. And please head on over to iTunes and let us know what you think. I'm Dave Myers. You can follow me on Twitter at David F. Myers. And you can get all your updates 24-7 at TikTok.